Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today, we're excited to continue our year-end toolkit series, which is an annual series of episodes designed to help you through the year-end close process. And even if you're not currently in year-end, don't change the channel. This information is relevant no matter when your year-end occurs, and some of this advice may help you get ahead in your process. Yeah, I think I think the common theme that runs through all of these is communication. There are a lot of individuals in inside companies that have not been integral to financial reporting and disclosures and compliance in the past that are getting sucked in very mm-hmm. quickly, be it be it cyber, be it clawback, be it um, ESG um, materiality calls. Like there's a group of people that are now finding themselves in a, in resp- a role that they haven't experienced before. And like with planning for evaluating a cyber incident, I think you're well served to start to bring those folks into the fold. Thinking about MDNA, that is your communication. That is that is the mechanism uh, for management to give its view of the business uh, to investors. And so everything else, the financial statements and the disclosures, those are all critical. And and there you're describing, you know, the actual accounting and the actual results. Uh, but but MDNA is is really meant to be investors seeing the business through management's eyes. And so I think we continue to see focus on that. We see it in the comment letters as well, uh, that that the staff is focused on that. They want more details. They want quantification. Uh, and they want clarity around how these different things are impacted. Joining for today's episode are Tim Carey, PwC's national office leader, and Kevin Vaughn, a partner in the professional practice group in our national office. As you heard in the last episode, to switch things up this year, our year-end toolkit series will be hosted by a series of guest hosts. You'll recognize them as frequent guests on the podcasts and webcasts, and who will be bringing their own perspective to these topics. Taking over the host seat for today's episode is Kyle Moffat, leader of the professional practice group within PwC's national office. Together, Tim, Kevin, and Kyle will talk through some of the latest developments on what's happening with rulemaking and other activity at the SEC, as well as updates from the AICPA and SEMA conference on current SEC and PCAOB developments. And they'll also provide some helpful reminders and best practices for issuers to keep in mind when working with the SEC. With that, let's get started. Kevin and Tim. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our year-end toolkit series with a very special episode on SEC developments. Don't worry, uh, Heather Horn will be back, but I am standing in for her today. Today, we are going to spend some time talking about the developments at the SEC, obviously a lot going on, and and also the standard setters, um, including current rulemaking priorities and including how companies can stay engaged and and be prepared for year-end. We all know that the SEC has a very aggressive rulemaking agenda that they're trying to get through as quickly as possible. 
Um, obviously, a, a number of rules have been finalized this year. We'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, we're still waiting on on finalization of a few rules, including uh, the climate rule, and we're also waiting on a, uh, a proposal on, on human capital. So I want to really just start, and Kevin and I recently attended the ASCPA conference on current SEC and PCAOB developments last week, and we also want to share some, some insights um, that we heard from that conference w- with the audience. But Tim, um, before we get into that, can you start us off by sharing your perspective on the tone at the PCOB, the SEC, what you're hearing with respect to standard setting rulemaking. Just curious, you get your thoughts. Sure. Um, I guess I would categorize or characterize the the tone at all the regulatory agencies these days as is serious, stern. You know, I was just listening even today to uh, Erica Williams' testimony uh, in front of the Financial Services Subcommittee. And whether it's it's that subcommittee or you're meeting with them in person or you heard this at the conference last week, you hear the same thing over and over from the SEC, PCOB, FINRA. They're out there to protect investors. They acknowledge that companies and auditors and other professionals um, are out there trying to do the, the right thing, but not everyone is, and they're going to use every tool in their toolkit to make sure that those people are are dealt with. And what that means is they're an aggressive enforcement environment right now. So Kevin, turning to you, we talked a little bit about the the rulemaking agenda. And so we do know, and the SEC has updated its rulemaking agenda, so they call it the RegFlex agenda. Can you talk a little bit about the agenda? Um, Talk about a little bit what's on the agenda, um, essentially kind of the priorities that we expect to see over the next six months? Yeah, absolutely. So so the RegFlex agenda, I, I mean, I think one of the most important things to say about that is is that that is what the chair uh, of the commission is is going to be focused on, where the staff is going to be devoting its time. It doesn't really give you insight into what is priority number one versus priority number five versus priority number 20. So, you know, we don't have a whole lot of that. Uh, and they do have dates in there. Uh, we talk all the time, uh, those dates don't really mean anything. Uh, it's just that they update it every April and every October. Uh, and so usually that gives you an indication. Are they thinking that they might get something done on it in the next six months? Uh, if so, then then it will be marked as, as April. But I, I think what we've seen uh, and what we continue to see in the agenda since, since uh, Chair Gensler took over uh, is certainly a focus on markets. Uh, he that's part of the mission of the SEC is the the well functioning markets, uh, and and there's been a number of rulemakings that have come out uh, that focus on that, uh, and that continues to clearly be an important aspect of his agenda. Uh, but also uh, on the corporate side, we see things like climate and human capital, uh, corporate board diversity. Uh, there's rulemaking out there on. Uh, SPACs uh, as well that's sitting out there, and those continue to be on the agenda. And, and I think we expect progress on some of those uh, in the in the coming months. Uh, hopefully, uh, some of them have been out there in proposal stage for quite a while. So, it, it one one thing too, and and it's I think was very interesting from the AICPA conference. Obviously, a lot of commentary from those various regulators on you know a number of topics. And I think one thing that that I think stood out to me. It, it really is is kind of the C, Corfin OCA as well as OCA really focused on risk assessments, the importance of risk assessment. We saw a recent statement from Paul Munter on that, um, you know, the last few months, and then of course the you know, statement of cash flow is a statement on that. So, Tim, curious about your your thoughts on that? Sure. So I'll start with risk assessment. 
you know, as, as auditors, we think about risk assessment all the time as we plan our audits and we uh, make a determination about what, what accounts we want to look at and what we want to do. And management management does their own risk assessments as well. Um, but I think as the world continues to get more complex, as we're dealing with a flurry of new rules and new new issues that we hadn't thought about in the past, mm-hmm. risk assessments become even more important. And so I would say it's really important. In the past, you'd think about risk assessment. You get in a room and you have a couple of minutes of conversation and you you say, oh, that's not risky or that's risky. Um, When we talk about risk assessment today, it's, it's deep thinking. You have to think thoroughly about it. You need to talk with multiple people. You need to reach out um, across organizations, make sure you're understanding what all the best thinking is as you're doing that. And as always, do a well-documented risk assessment, I think, is always helpful, um, particularly down the, down the road when things um, might, uh, might be, get problematic or a little dicey. Um, so I think it's a good reminder. I think we all know how to do it. Um, we just need to continue to have it on the front of our mind and, and like I said, do it, do some deep thinking around it. As for the uh, cash flow uh, statements that Paul Munter made last week, um, you know, to me, I, I thought it was good timing and it was, um, there were comments that resonated with me. I've always thought that the most important statement in set of financial statements is cash flow, <laughs> yet they tend to be um, the last statement they're presented, an yeah. and they're ones that you know just get ticked and tied, and at the end, um, and so like we've also seen an uptick in restatements over uh, cash flow. So I think you take those two together, and I think his his comments were spot on. I think one of the challenges that we're going to all have over that is. When you see errors in a cash flow, how do you deal with it from a determining materiality perspective? And, you know, we all fall back on the classification, um, which I think we all understand. But the other thing is, usually on these these errors, there are amounts that are shown and they're described. So there's less ambiguity about what is this item. You can see the number. You it's can transparent. see the number. Yeah. It's just where does it fall in in the statement and, you know— comments were clear. Classification matters, and there's one materiality uh, number to financial statements. And look, I I think we all need to think through that as we're looking at potential errors. But I think the better thing to do is spend time up front, really focused on on how you you classify these amounts, how you measure these amounts. I mean, we do that with revenue. We do that with business combinations. We do that with taxes. We, we talk about the income statement and the P&L, or the P&L and balance sheet impact. We ought to be adding into that discussion what's the cash flow impact. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting because this has been an area where the SEC certainly has – we've seen an uptick in comments from the staff. We've seen the staff over the last five or six years even objecting to conclusions on materiality. So certainly not going to go away. And I think, you know, Paul – doubling down on that message at the conference. I think, obviously, uh, companies need to be paying attention. And, and of course, we, we're, we're paying attention. Sure. So, so switching gears a little bit, um, just thinking about some of the priorities that, that we heard from some of the panelists and, and what we're seeing um, from the SEC, um, a couple of things that, you know, just want to remind the audience of is there are two new, pretty pretty large rules um, that, that were finalized with with disclosure requirements for this year end. And, and certainly the one rule that has been stayed um, that, that we're continuing to follow pretty closely. Uh, but 
as as far as clawbacks, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And the quick reminder there is this rule will be effective this year requires the policy to be filed as an exhibit so that policy for recovery of executive incentive-based or erroneously awarded executive-based compensation in the event of a required accounting restatement. So that would include both um, big R's and little r's, so your restatements and revisions. Listing standards already effective. Companies had until December 1st to actually adopt a, a company recovery policy. Um, and obviously companies, you know, uh, the people in charge or, or um, part of the financial reporting process ensure that – need to ensure that that uh, policy is actually filed as an exhibit. So, it, you know, just keep in mind that any executive compensation received on or after October 2nd could be subject to clawback in the event of a required accounting uh, restatement. Um, and so one of the things that that people have talked about and that we've heard a lot of commentary on, it just really is when you have a voluntary immaterial revision, um, how should that be dealt with with respect to these checkboxes? I mean, obviously, that's not something that would require a recovery analysis. But again, there are specific disclosure requirements in the event there is a required restatement that triggers the clawback. Say, um, I think it just highlights, right, right, the importance of getting the materiality analysis correct. So I, I kind of want to turn to both of you, and I'll start with you, Kevin. What are the conversations you're having with engagement teams and our clients on this topic? Any observations to share? Yeah. So the the conversations, uh, admittedly, are very, very focused on the checkboxes. These these two little boxes on the cover of the 10K that that are uh, upending uh, the financial reporting world, if you will. So, but a lot of that focus is is just thinking through what what will trigger the different checkboxes and and maybe working backwards you talked about the second checkbox uh, which is the one that that indicates whether you had to do a recovery analysis there's actually not a whole lot of tension on that checkbox like it's pretty pretty clear when you check that checkbox uh, and and so I don't think there's a whole lot of questions there uh, and a lot of that focus is about understanding materiality when there's a material uh, uh, error that requires correction uh, and that would include the little R's and big R's where there's a lot of focus is on the first checkbox and what will trigger the first checkbox. Uh, it's obviously a different checkbox than the second one. What we heard at the conference uh, and, and uh, I'll just kind of share what, what the chief accountant of court Finn said, uh, which is there's kind of two components uh, to that checkbox. The first is that there is a, an accounting error uh, as that term is defined in gap so that has to be present. Uh, and then the second element that has to be present is a change to the prior period financial statements uh, that are included in the filing as a result of that error. So the point that she stressed and that other other SEC staff have stressed on this uh, is that regardless of materiality, even voluntary uh, immaterial errors in their view uh, would essentially what she said is that that would trigger that first checkbox. Uh, so I think there's still a lot to come here. Uh, there's there's probably discussions that companies will want to have with their legal advisors. Uh, you know, certainly from an accounting standpoint, I think we're going to be very focused on when something is an accounting error, uh, and and that's you know, accountants at preparers as well can certainly contribute to that. You know, we understand the concepts and ASC 250 can contribute there, but certainly that that checkbox uh, is one of the hottest topics out there right now <laughs> to talk about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the the interesting piece to that, right, is to your point, 
if you have an, something you typically would have called an out-of-period adjustment and just pushed through the current quarter, if you decide that you want to go back and and basically revise those prior periods, you know that even though that's not considered a big R, little R, the stats view is it was an error. You changed your prior period financial statements in that document. You check box one. Check the box. Yeah. I think the other point to illustrate is this is not only the financial statements, not only the balance sheet, not only income statement, not only the cash flow statement, uh, but but it's also the footnotes too. Um, so when you think a lot of those things, um, if it's a true out of period and you and you just book it in the current the current period, uh, that is not in the scope of the checkbox. I think they've provided clarity on that. But if you do go back and change the prior financials, including the footnote disclosures. Segment disclosures. Right. Yep. If you get it wrong and you have to fix it and you change it, the prior periods, that's going to be checkbox one. That's right. And any any observations on kind of, you know, what have you spent time on? I know you've had conversations. Yeah. I, I You even talked to me about conversations with with boards, audit committees on the topic. What, what have they indicated or concerns of theirs? Well, I think it's important that companies start interacting with comp committees on this topic. You know, I'm sure we'll get to cyber at some point here. But, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about the most important judgments that preparers and auditors make, it's around materiality, right? right? And so now we've got this new flurry of roles that is bringing in different materiality discussions than we've had in the past. So you put yourself in the, the shoes of, an, of a comp committee member who may never have dealt with any of financial reporting or been concerned about materiality. Now, with responsibility for them setting comp structures, uh, clawback policies, and the like, I'm hoping that companies are having these discussions and that they understand what it means to check box one, what it means to determine what the implications are to that determination, and that they they are part of those discussions and, and understand all the consequences. I think it's super important. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Tim. I, I mean, the, this this is the message I think we've we've kind of been delivering ourselves in conversations with management, with um, audit committees, is the importance of effective communication across the organization. Um, and I think, you know, to, you mentioned that cyber is is probably the best example of that, and that's the kind of one of the other rules yeah. that, that that companies are having having to deal with. Um, obviously, and, and you know, I want to turn to you, Kevin, talk about some of the, the key elements. I know this is a topic you've been talking a lot uh, to a lot of clients um, about um, management. You've talked to CISOs. Um, you know, I have as well. I don't think we can count the amount of conversations we've had on the topic. But can you start with kind of high level what's required just as a refresher, what maybe we expect to see, and, and then kind of get, dive into a little bit about some of the challenges that the companies may be facing? Yeah, definitely. Uh, this is certainly, I agree, like the, the cross-functional element of this is, is critical. So we'll get into that. But, but in terms of the rules themselves, there's kind of three buckets to it. The first is, is disclosure of material cyber incidents. Uh, and, and what the SEC clarified in the rule here is that that would be a disclosure on a form 8K. Uh, there's a new item number 105 of form 8K, uh, where you'll include those disclosures. Uh, and, and that will be required within four days of determining that you experienced a material cyber incident. And when they define cyber incident, uh, material cyber incident, they make it clear it could be a single occurrence uh, or it could be a series of related occurrences uh, with related occurrences likely being, you know, same threat actor uh, or exploiting the same vulnerability. 
So there is a period of time between the incident and that materiality determination. No set required time there. Uh, it's really about making that determination without unreasonable delay. Uh, I think the rule clearly acknowledges the accumulation of information uh, does take some time. Uh, and then and then the disclosure in the AK about the, the nature of the scope, the timing, uh, and the impacts of the, of the cyber incident. The second disclosure uh, is an annual disclosure in the Form 10-K, and that relates to the process that the company has for assessing and identifying and managing their cyber risk. Uh, and, and that'll be a new disclosure, again, coming into effect this year for calendar year and companies. Uh, and that disclosure will also include uh, disclosure of the impacts uh, of those cyber risks on the company, uh, including relating to past cyber incidents. And then the final piece is, is what I'll call the governance piece, uh, which is both management oversight of cyber risk as well as um, board oversight of cyber risk. And so the management oversight, the interesting thing with that disclosure is, is it's who's responsible on management for managing those cyber risks, but also interestingly, what their expertise, what their qualifications are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little bit of a unique disclosure uh, from, from a 10K perspective. Uh, and then on the board side, it's really what is the role that they play uh, in overseeing those risks. Uh, there was in the proposal, there was talk about like disclosing board expertise uh, that uh, came out in the final rule. So if I move on to the challenges that I've heard from companies, uh, and and certainly both of you jump in with with anything you've heard as well, is it's a lot of that materiality determination. So I think we we officially have our theme here. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the materiality determination, and and the hard thing here is that it's not going to be a quantitative. Only it's not like analysis. SAB 99 and it's, SAB 108 right. where you're walking through the, the, the numbers, the, the historical, part. right? Like yeah. this is future these are, impacts, yeah. right? Like, these are all going to be forward-looking impacts. That, And that's not to say that a quantitative, that there couldn't be material right, quantitative right, impacts. Right. I mean, we hear about ransomware payments. We hear Correct. about, yep. you know, things like that. Um, but, but I think a lot of the consideration is it's probably going to be qualitative factors that drive this reputational harm, impact to customers, impact to systems, inability to deliver products and services to customers, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, And so companies are really going through the process of figuring out how do we escalate incidents? How do we make sure that we've baked materiality into that all the way along and that we have the right information? I mean, you've got the technical experts from the information security side, you've got, you know, the accounting and finance reporting experts, you've got legal experts, and they all have to come together. And, and you know, we do this, we, we have technical cybersecurity experts as well. And that's usually who I'm talking with, with, with companies is, is we'll join together. And, and I, I can't explain the technical details, uh, but, but he can. And, and uh, so it's the same thing. We are practicing what we're preaching a little bit yeah. in a lot of these conversations. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I think, you know, we, we do have, you know, want to put a plug in for our PwC materiality publication for, uh, the, you know, assessing cybersecurity incidents. And I think that's obviously something, Kevin, that you worked on. Um, one one thing that kind of I always like to remind people of is just to to always think about the ongoing impacts as well, that if you have a cyber incident and it does impact customers, don't stop there and say, oh, well, we reported it. We filed our 8K, we're done, we move on. 
there may be impacts to the financial statements right down the road. So think about like if it's going to impact your customer base, right? Are you going to be able to grow at those same rates that you have in the past? Like you just think the very basics, like the discounted cash flow model for recoverability of goodwill or reporting in it, right? Like, are you, should you be assuming those same growth rates? Um, you know, should you be, should there be higher expenses that you're accounting for? So there's a lot of impacts that companies need to be thinking about because down the road, they could have significant financial statement impacts beyond, like you said, the ransomware and some of these other mm-hmm. other things. You know, I'd just add add one comment to this materiality um, discussion, and I, I think you mentioned it in in our publication. But it's important that you think about these things now. Um, yeah, we, we've been around cyber incidents. It's a chaotic time. There's a lot of very important uh, discussions going on. There's a lot of pressure. And to think through up front, what are we going to do in terms of assessing materiality? Who is going to be involved in those discussions? What information do we need to collect in order to make that determination? Are all things that companies will be thankful that they've thought about beforehand um, in calm times when they have you know the time to think clearly about what information they need? I think also when you get into discussions or have to defend a position that you've taken in terms of materiality, having a framework up front, mm-hmm. having process around it, it's a more persuasive argument and a persuasive uh, set of facts um, yeah. should you ever be questioned and challenged down the line. I, that, and that brings to my mind another point, Tim. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. And it's really, you know, if you're going to think about your disclosures this year, make sure that you are, in fact, doing what you say you're doing. <laughs> don't embellish. Don't try to sell that you are doing more than you're actually doing. Um, so be transparent about what it is you're doing, because if you're not and you have a cyber incident, the SEC is going to come after you and say, well, Such wait a, a second. Point. I'm trying to reconcile these disclosures and I don't really get it. Um, I, it looks like there's some important elements missing here. Um, and I think that really is going to – I think that's something companies need to be thinking about as they're crafting year-end disclosures and ensuring the CISO or whoever responsible is comfortable with that disclosure. Oh, yeah. it, it's a podcast where so people can't see how much I'm smiling as yeah. you say yeah. that. But yeah. it seems like such a obvious statement. It does. It does. But we see it over and we do. over yeah. and over where there's a comment somewhere that contradicts what actually happened or mm-hmm. a process that actually yep. took place. And, and it's across the board, right? It's it's not just cyber. It's non-GAAP. It's all these topics. And they really are those qualitative disclosures that companies provide in narrative form that they can get you in trouble. So be clear, transparent of what it is that you're actually doing um, and, and make sure that your policies and procedures are, in fact, operating that way um, when when it comes time for, you know, when the SEC or others come calling, you want to make sure your ducks are in a row. That's a great point. So, Tim, I'm going to turn to you. Given kind of where where the SEC is with with all of these rulemakings, what do you think this means for, for companies? I mean, what should they be focused on? How they should be, how should they be thinking about preparing for, for year end? Yeah, I think, I think the common theme that runs through all of these is communication. There are a lot of individuals in inside companies that have not been integral to financial reporting and disclosures and compliance in the past that are getting sucked in very mm-hmm. quickly be it be it cyber be it clawback be it um, ESG um, materiality calls like 
there's a group of people that are now finding themselves in a in a role that they haven't experienced before. And like with planning for evaluating a cyber incident, I think you're well served to start to bring those folks into the fold. We've even seen enforcement actions um, recently around cyber where you know, CISOs and, and CIOs are, are now all of, a, all of a sudden a little more interested in what's going on yeah. in disclosure committees and reading what's uh, being put into, into filing documents and the like. So really thinking through these new rules, thinking through them up front, and importantly, start to educate those that may be called into these discussions around filings that, that previously hadn't uh, been in that world that we yeah, live that's in. That's a great, great point there. I mean, I think just we, we continue to talk about this cross-functional team that needs to be involved and aware and engaged on it. And I think I think it's only getting more obvious that that needs to happen. And the cross-pollination of the legal side of the house and the financial side of the house, right? Seeing more and more of that as well. You know, you're seeing it in, in Europe. You're seeing it um, over here. There's a lot of discussion around non-financial information included in these filings. And, and as those details get pulled in, you know. It broadens the responsibility across the organization. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it also links back, you were talking earlier about Paul Munter's statement on risk assessment, right? And and one of the key points that, that he's made and that others have made is you cannot be too narrow in this. You have to think broader. Don't just think of the of the direct you know, the, in cyber, you know, the single system that was impacted, like there could be other ramifications beyond that. And, and in order to be able to think that way, you have to have all the people in the room. For sure. It can't just be, you know, the, the one subgroup. So turning to what's on the horizon. Um, so there's more, on the uh, there, there's a lot on the horizon. And I think that the two elephants in the room, human capital and, and climate, you know, and, and one of the you know things I'm sure our audience knows, the staff doesn't like to comment on things that are in the works, um, especially these days. I think they're pretty cautious about that. We didn't hear a lot of, of you know, n- not much insight at the conference, I'd say, on, on both of those. The timing or hints as to when that might happen. A lot of speculation. Anything that we should expect or timing or things that we should expect to see with respect to human capital and then climate. I, I am uh, 100% out of the timing business. <laughs> timing <laughs> no crystal ball business. anymore. Yeah. Uh, also, mostly out of um, out of the business of predicting what's going to be in there. So maybe I'll, I'll spin it a slightly different way. Maybe starting with human capital. Uh, again, it is on the RegFlex agenda. It's on the short term. It, it's one of the last remaining items that was on Chair Gensler's original agenda. Uh, where there hasn't been any activity at all. Uh, so it's kind of just been sitting out there for a while. We've been waiting. Not a whole lot in the way of comments. There was earlier in, in, in I think it was September, the, the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee made some recommendations uh, on human capital and what they what they thought the SEC should consider in terms of that rulemaking. Uh, so, so a couple of things they recommended. Uh, one would be disclosure of the number of people employed, full-time, part-time, contingent workers, uh, disclosure of turnover uh, or, or some, source, some sort of workforce stability metrics, uh, disclosure of the total cost of the workforce broken down by different types of compensation uh, and then demographic data. Uh, and then there were some other uh, narrative qualitative type disclosures that they were suggesting as well. So that's kind of what we have uh, on human capital. That's the most recent recommendation. There's been other petitions uh, that the commission do more there uh, as well. So, and then on climate, again, uh, I am 
not going to predict timing or what will or won't be in there. Uh, but, but certainly what we've heard highlighted from the staff and their remarks is, one, there were uh, a lot of comment letters, uh, and it takes a lot of time to go through those. They are going through those, considering all the feedback. Uh, Chair Gensler has highlighted uh, that there were a lot of concerns expressed about scope three disclosures, uh, and that has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, and uh, the other area that he's highlighted, uh, which is consistent with our analysis, right, is that is that there was a lot of concerns expressed uh, in relation to the financial statement metrics. So he hasn't said that anything's changing with those. Uh, so we don't know. We won't know until we have a final rule. But but certainly uh, the fact that he's highlighting it, and of course, you know, share repurchase rules some of the legal challenges that that are likely to be facing the SEC uh, I'm I'm sure that that is factoring into uh, their process and they're trying to uh, they're trying to come up with a rule that that uh, is supportable that that would be able to withstand legal challenge anything you wanted to add on the topic of of climate or just ESG oh, more where broadly do where do you um, begin yeah well I, I think California threw a bit of a curveball. Yeah. And I think is going to end up accelerating what a lot of companies had had thought was going to be some runway. Um, I, I I think it's interesting that you know with California's rule, we're really being driven by by standards, international standards, and reporting requirements. And it'll be interesting to see how those uh, how those feather into what the final SEC rules are. But mm-hmm. uh, I it's a it's a well well traveled uh, topic, and I don't have much more to add. Yeah, I'm yeah. just glad there's not uh, double materiality. Yeah, well, on that's cyber, that's a great uh, point. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So so I want to turn back to to risk assessments and Tim. I just you know obviously this this has been a heavy focus and emphasis, and it was at the conference. So, so we have that statement that Paul had published, and then he, you know, the the staff kind of doubled down on that at the conference. But can you talk a little bit about, like, you know, just the audit process? You know, how how one, I mean, you, you, you signing opinions, how you think about that uh, risk assessment and some of the impacts yeah, on the sure. financials. Sure, and I I think this is a topic that we focus on more and more every year. You know, when we're going through through an inspection and someone looks at our work and is trying to understand why we did or more times than not didn't do something. And we start to run through the reasons why we did or didn't do anything. You inevitably come back to how you assess the risk in that particular account and that line item in that system. Um, and it's not always apparent from our documentation, like how we assess those things. And if you can't, explain how you risk assessed something, it's really difficult to explain why you did what you did. Um, And so we've been spending a lot more time thinking deeply, and I said this earlier, thinking deeply about risk assessment and documenting it. So we are spending a lot more time thinking through documenting our risk assessment and making sure that the most senior members of our engagement teams are in those discussions and what that is generally resulting in is more focused, more tailored, and, and many times less actual audit work because it's being responsive to a much deeper risk assessment. Gotcha. So turning to, to investors, right? So investors clearly, you know, the, the message is the investor investor protection remit of all these, you know, regulators. You've heard it also from the FASB. Can you talk a little bit about why they're focused on kind of, you know, investor protection, talking about the company's impact, 
um, all these disclosures. We talk about the impacts of interest rates, inflation, and I know we'll get into some year-end reminders. But why why do we care about all of this? Well, I think we always care about making sure that we're getting the right financial reporting, we're auditing the right risks, we're um, disclosing the right things in financial statements. But things are changing rapidly, and they're they're in areas that. I wouldn't say that we haven't seen before, but we haven't seen them in a very long time. Similarly, when you look at our clients and management teams of our clients, some of them may not have dealt with these before Ever. at all. Right. Think about how long we've been operating in this interest rate environment. Mm-hmm. Think about um, how companies have had to renegotiate debt agreements, the information they supplied, the scenarios they had to plan for, um, and just the discussions that that went on in refinancings, well, those are completely changed now that rates are north to seven percent and expected to be here here for a while. How do you think through forecasts? How do you think through EPS? Throwing things like um, you know pillar two and what's going on in the tax world, like these are new challenges not just for accountants but for management teams as well. So I think it's a really unique time for us. Um, some of us of a certain age, dusting off what we have been through in the past and others going through well, them for the first time. But it's, it's interesting because your your point, right, is a great one when you talk about management and people not maybe seeing this stuff in the past. And it really highlights the importance of an effective control environment, right? It highlights the importance of having the right policies and procedures in place, um, the controls in place. And it goes beyond just the internal controls over financial reporting, right? It, it goes into the disclosure controls and procedures um, and and kind of the the certifications that, that management is making with respect to the disclosures in the entire document. Um, I don't know, Kevin, did you want to add anything from kind of what we heard from the conference with respect to disclosures more broadly and kind of some of the messaging there? Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to say, like, I think if you think about and, and putting on my old SEC staff had, and and Kyle, you probably think of it the same way. Like, you know, when you hear about a lot of these challenges that companies are facing and you think about disclosures, you just naturally go to, okay, well, tell that story in your filing. You know, whether it, maybe these are risk factor disclosures, maybe this is disclosures in MDNA about the things impacting your business today, as well as the things that might impact your business going forward. And so, so certainly I think reiterating that from the disclosure side as well, like if these are things that management is having to spend a lot of time on internally, spending that time, uh, also communicating that to investors, uh, externally as well. And, and that's, you know, we talk a lot about, not having boilerplate disclosures and and things like that and and but also we talked about the story if you will and and here the story inside the company is all of these challenges we're facing all these challenges and we're trying to figure it out and it might impact our business the story outside should should reflect that as well there should be consistency between those yeah the analogy to the story i think is right on i mean we all get to to read a lot of filings and it, it amazes me sometimes how some filings you, you read and you just understand and you feel the context of that story and others you read and you, you really don't walk away with any insight. And I think prepare sometimes, you know, they may be too close to it. The, the MDNA may just be a, 
a marginal change yeah, every yeah, year. And yeah. sometimes it's it's worthwhile to step back and really objectively look at what you're saying, because sometimes it, it's what you're not saying that's as important as what you are saying. I mean, and, and we've seen that, right? If if you have not given any, given any indication of challenges or risks the company is facing, right, or trends in the business, and then something happens, which we've seen uh, lots of things happen over the last few years, um, you're going to find yourselves in not just challenges with the investor, but also, you know, pressure from the regulators. I mean, the SEC Absolutely. is going to come hard after you. Um, so, so I think we'll turn now to kind of the, the, the thing that probably people are listening in to hear kind of the, the year end reminders. And, um, I think that's obviously a lot of value in, in some of the things because we, we try to play, you know, stay pretty plugged into what's going on, um, at the SEC, what they're focused on. And, um, so we want to certainly share some some thoughts, and I think we'll start, Kevin, with you on MDNA because I think obviously in MDNA there's a lot to unpack there. So um, let you go ahead and dive into that. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think we kind of uh, you know somewhat just hit on that, right? Is is thinking about MDNA that is your communication that is that is the mechanism. Uh, for management to give its view of the business uh, to investors. And so everything else, the financial statements and the disclosures, those are all critical. And and there you're describing, you know, the actual accounting and the actual results. Uh, but but MD&A is, is really meant to be investors seeing the business through management's eyes. And so I think we continue to see focus on that. We see it in the comment letters as well, uh, that, that the staff is focused on that. They want more details. They want quantification, uh, and they want clarity around how these different things are impacting and how is inflation, how are tax changes around the world? How are, is instability around the world? How are those things impacting? The other piece of it that that got a lot, a lot of attention at the conference uh, is is around the area of critical accounting estimates, uh, and and again you have the footnote disclosure of the accounting policies. The critical accounting estimates are not meant to be a repeat of that. It's supposed to give insights into those critical judgments uh, that management is making in in its accounting. So I think we'll continue to see them focusing, wanting more just more insight into into how management is making those judgments what are the key factors impacting it and and how you know different judgments might impact it differently might have might have impacted the results differently uh, and I think we heard that as well it's it's a different standard different requirements but we heard it also in the audit on the audit report side in in the context of critical audit matters right like we heard that there was a focus on how the average number of CAMs has declined, um, but it's the same concept in my mind is, you know, everybody wants to have more insight into what are those judgmental areas uh, in connection with the financial statements or in connection with the audit uh, that, that may require a little bit more discussion uh, and, and for investors to understand that. Yeah, the one thing, and Kevin, you, to your point there about this, you know, quantitative assessment, right? Like, when you think about that, usually you see it right with goodwill, right? And I think the staff kind of has in their financial reporting manual, they have a section in the financial reporting manual that kind of highlights what the expectations are with respect to a reporting unit that potentially is at risk for impairment and how to think about it and potentially quantify impact. So those are some of the things that I think, you know, and, and you can obviously benchmark look at other, other companies to see what they do as well. But I do think the staff is going to be pushing hard on it. We, you know, this is not a staff interpretation. It used to be years ago. So it was a lot harder for the staff to enforce and police that space. And I think now 
now that it's codified in a specific commission-backed rule, the staff certainly has the ability, they have that hook, to come hard at companies. And they expect to see more transparent disclosures about the you know changes in some of these assumptions. I mean, they're going to see that on a quantitative as well as a qualitative basis. So uh, that, that's, that's very helpful. And I think thinking about quantitative and qualitative, I'm going to go to the next topic here, yeah. which – is always something that kind of it's always like every five years or ten years you <laughs> it starts to rise to the top of the list for areas of comment. But yeah, yeah, and so this is this is good old item three hundred five of of Regulation SK, which is quantitative and qualitative uh, disclosures of market risk. It, you know, and I, I I think a lot of this it's always something on top of mind of of the of the SEC staff uh it, it's it's obviously a critical disclosure uh and and it also provides insight into the way some of these things are some of the market factors might impact to business i think it got uh, bonus attention this year uh, as a result of some of the banking issues we saw. Uh, and and so we certainly saw coming out of that a lot of focus from the staff about disclosures. And some of that was targeted in the financial services sector. But I think the message that we heard loud and clear at the conference is that this is not a financial services sector specific issue. This is a broad issue and all companies should be thinking about this. Uh, and and all you know companies have all sorts of market risks. Uh, Don't today. carry forward those disclosures from the prior periods. That's right. the important point yeah. there, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so I, you know, we'll see. You know, it might be something. I think the staff is forecasting also there that we might see more comments there. We might see more specific questions being asked. Uh, we've already seen that uh, in some spaces, and and I think that'll continue and grow. So, a couple other observations on just comment letter trends in general. So, so one thing that that we continue to talk about is the pay versus performance, and so, um, you know, the staff does continue to issue comments on the topic. We've seen a number of comments in that space. I expect to see even more so this year. The, the one thing to point out is there are staff interpretations um, that have been published. So those are in the form of compliance and disclosure interpretations, and those were issued back in September. But that does provide a little more clarity on some of the questions that were arising in, in kind of compliance there. But keep that in mind, and that's something that, it, it again, we've talked about cross-functional you know, coordination that's key here because you, you certainly need to talk to the accountants because they understand what, what needs to be disclosed and the, the, the financial reporting aspects of, you know, compensation in general. Non-GAAP obviously is a huge area of, of focus and I'm interested in hearing but what each of you think on the topic. Um, but again, it's not going away. It will continue to be high on the list. I think, you know, what we typically try to do is try to avoid individually tailored accounting principles. And by that, you know, it means don't try to say, hey, gap, we don't like gap. We don't like the answer there. So we're going to, you know, go with an alternative measure or presentation. So a good example of that is you do gross versus net. So if you report on a gross basis, your revenue, then say, well, we don't like that answer. We want to show it net and then show it as a non-gap measure. The staff uh, certainly will will ask you to, to remove that from, from your filings. Um, the other thing I think is just, you know, don't just throw numbers in. Look at those numbers. If you have addbacks or you add new numbers like expense addbacks, stay focused on what's included in those. Take a fresh look at those adjustments um, because the staff has certainly been spending time looking a little bit deeper into what comprises those specific adjustments. A, a good example is restructuring charges, right? Restructuring costs. The staff has said, historically, we're not going to object to that, that those types of adjustments. We're not going to object to, let's say, stock comp. Um, but with restructuring charges, right, there are some cash components there. 
Um, so you, the staff's really going to be focused on it and, per, and get a little more detailed in, into some of the, the components of it. So don't be surprised to see them ask questions about the nature of the expenses included in there, you know, and, and we've seen them challenge um, some of those costs um, that are being added back. Um, so those are things you just keep in mind. Have a good understanding of what's actually included in that add back. And I think it really highlights the importance of having good controls in place, right? Good disclosure controls and procedures surrounding those those uh, disclosures. Interestingly, and, and Kevin, you know, curious when we'll go a little bit deeper in, into kind of some thoughts on segments um, and and kind of the interplay with with non-GAAP. And you want to talk a little bit about kind of what we heard at the conference? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, so we have the new segment standard that came out uh, a couple weeks ago and, and it'll go effective uh, in, in a little while. But but there is the option to early adopt and, and there's a couple components to it. And, you know, we just had a, a, a podcast on segments, uh, you know, very recently as well. Uh, but essentially, I think a lot of the focus there is segment disclosures are very important to investors. Uh, and so companies might think about in the new standard uh, disclosing more than one measure of segment. Uh, but there is some interplay with the non-GAAP rules. And so the staff at the conference made some comments. And I think essentially what they're saying is, Look, if you plan to early adopt, if you plan to disclose more than one measure of segment profit, uh, and you know, essentially come talk to us. And there's there's finer points to it, uh, but but come talk to us. I think they're trying to they're trying to work through that uh, and make sure that that everything stays consistent across the non-GAAP rules, which are our commission rules, right? So you know, in the hierarchy, they're they're pretty pretty high up there, uh, and then and then the FASB standard as well. So you mentioned. It's a recently issued accounting pronouncement. So I think that that kind of brings me to the next topic, which really is SAB 74 disclosures, right? So a reminder there that we, we do have a number of new standards um, that, that have been issued by the FASB. Companies need to be mindful of providing that disclosure of what the expected impact is on the financial statements. Um, so that's something just to keep in mind that those disclosures are required. And and we've seen the staff issue a lot of comments on SAB 74. It's also called SAB Topic 11M. So um, right. you can look that up and, and you should be able to find it. Um, but I, it go ahead. Uh, sorry, I just want to jump in on that because I think, I think one thing that the staff really stressed on that at the conference uh, knowing that you know we have some recently issued standards, we have segments, we have the crypto standard, income taxes uh, is expected soon. All of those coming out, and they really highlighted that that disclosure, even if you haven't yet figured out what the impact is going to be, you still need to do that disclosure. Uh, so I, I think that's an important point. And, and really, when you think about the crypto standard, which may only impact a smaller subset of people, but but one of the impacts that that standard may have is that your financial statements may include a whole lot more volatility because now you're going to be writing those assets up and down in value, fair value. Uh, and, and so that's going to create more volatility in what you report going forward, potentially, uh, if those prices continue to do as they've done in the past, which is fluctuate uh, right. significantly. Yeah. Speaking of, of crypto, obviously a lot of heavy interest on some of these topics, right, at the SEC. So, I think we we can't kind of go through for the podcast talking about year and reminders without a reminder that, you know, this enforcement division is very active. They refer to themselves as cops on the beat. We've heard it from senators even on the Hill that cops are back on the beat. 
And so we will be issuing another podcast on enforcement. So stay tuned for that. And I think that will be uh, pretty interesting. Um, But I think that the message there is, and we've said it before, companies need to ensure disclosures are accurate and complete and updated for the current environment. You know, the other thing I'd close with, and and before I ask you guys a question, which is not on, on probably not at the top of mind, but I'm going to ask you guys a question, but really the importance of, of controls over disclosed information, um, making sure that, that, you know, investors have what they need to make an informed investment or voting decision. Um, it's something just needs to be top of mind. Um, and again, make sure that you stay engaged in the progress and where the SEC and, and other regulators are on, on, rulemaking uh, because certainly there there are some things going on in the behind the scenes that certainly are going to impact companies uh, moving forward so with that um, thank you both but I, I before we close I'd like to ask um, each of you to um, and, uh, and you can choose who goes first we have some time off the, towards the end of the month and and I know we're all looking forward to it I know one thing Kevin and I talked about was we're really hoping that the the new climate uh, rule does not get <laughs> finalized before the holiday break because we certainly would want you know a little bit of time off to kind of relax a little bit and refresh before a busy season or even during. But what I will ask um, each of you is, um, what are your plans? What are you looking forward to most during kind of that that downtime? All right, I'll go first. Well, I I think I'm just looking forward to uh, my son uh, will be home from school, and so so we'll have uh, all four of us back in the back in the house together for for an extended period of time. Uh, so we're looking forward to that and and watching some good football games, you know, and, and some good, good bowl games, uh, hopefully. So, uh, really just that time with the family and going to bounce around, bounce around to a couple of places to visit family. Uh, but too bad we couldn't see a James Madison university matchup against uh, Michigan. I thought would have been, <laughs> well, been pretty uh, fascinating next year, next year, uh, next, next year, year yep. uh, when, when the NCAA is not scared of James, I, I anymore. would be willing to switch that out for, um, for Alabama, <laughs> if anyone's interested. Tim? The same. Uh, our three sons are coming back. We're spending Christmas in New York, which is always nice. And then we're uh, heading south for some warm weather and golf, all scheduled around the uh, the football schedule nice. and uh, our, bowl, our, uh, our bowl pools. So I'm just looking forward to getting um, – getting some some time to relax there's been so much going on yeah, in our collective been. worlds and yep. uh there's no uh, no end in sight so uh i'm hoping to just catch my breath i'm with you there well thank you both that's our show for today tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content follow the pwc accounting podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.